Okay, so this is politics and bullshit. I'm Aaron Bruther, Greg Rogers, and very special guest, Gary Whittingham. Okay. So what are you saying, Gary, man? How you been? Uh, it's just uh, oh, very well, and uh, it's just good to be here, looking at what you guys are doing, looking at what you set up here. Yeah, uh, nice, nice little venture. And I, I wish you all the all the success with it because it, it looks very positive. Thank you, thank you. We appreciate that. Put some uh, love into this, on it. Because you got you got to hope that somebody else recognises it and can help you along the way. You know, it's, uh, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Like we're saying just off there, I mean, the response has been good so far. So hopefully we can just crack on 2000. I say like it's the start of 2019, but it's long run. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like we'll push on now to second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, and just keep the momentum building. Yeah. Hopefully, obviously getting great people, great guests now. Yeah, like yeah. Yourself. So there's a plan. There's a plan. Yeah, man. So that's what you're plan. telling me. A bit of a plan in place. Yeah, man. It's definitely a right. plan. Yeah, good, Gotta good. have a plan. Yep, good, good. So what about yourself and what's been going on? Obviously, I know I've seen you all over your rock star status. Oh, please, <laughs> please, hardly, hardly. No, it's uh, no, it's going, it's going quite well. Um, you know, no complaints. You know, um, you, you, you probably already know that we've uh, we've only been together for a couple of years, me and the boys, and uh, things are going quite well. The diary's full. Hold on, you know? just for the people, let's give some context. I've known Gary since I was probably. In nappies. Yes. <laughs> in nappies. Yeah. So when people told me Gary was in a band, I yeah. was like, Gary is in a band. I was like, <laughs> I mean, that was a shock to me. I was like, what? Mr. Criminal Justice is in a band. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's what? not all about criminal justice, Aaron. You know this, don't you? <laughs> it's not all about that. You know. No, but I'm saying it's a good spot because I come and see the band play. Yeah. Obviously. And I was like, you know what? Very good, like brick. Because listen, I know a lot of people that hit middle age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, you could say, yeah, that's been polite, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, no, but they get, they get in a band. Yeah. No one's throwing no names. But I'm going up like, oh, no, you know, you need to. Yeah, man, the band's good, man. The band's good. Yeah, we, we have a go. Well, you guys are smashing it. We have a, we have a go. We, we give it a whirl, you know, and we're enjoying it, which is the main thing, you know, not yeah. taking ourselves too seriously. Is that the best way? Not take yourself too seriously? Well, well, I think so. I think, I think it's nice to have a bit of an idea of what you want to do. Yeah. Um, and, and how you want to sound. Yeah. But, um, I mean, essentially, it's a hobby for us. And uh, that, that's, be- you know, we're a bunch of mates together. And... Uh, you know, it, it just seems to work. There's a nice little chemistry there. Don't get me wrong. I mean, when we first started, there was there were other people within the band and there was a few teething problems, you know, band dynamics, band politics, call it what you will. Guys like, I'm lead singer. Hardly, <laughs> hardly. Nah, we we'll put saying, this shit together. Yeah, well, no, it's, 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 uh, it's funny how it came about because I, I used to go to a few um, different sort of functions and parties and what have you. And uh, this guy just says to me, he says, you, you, you seem to have this natural sort of uh, tone to your voice. And I thought, oh, yeah. And he asked me, and he's been asking, he'd been asking me for years, if I'm being honest, yeah. you know, um, ever since you were in nappies. <laughs> and, uh, and I just took no notice, you know. You know what it's like. You just go to a party, you drink, you have the crack, you go home. And then uh, eventually he just kept on at me and uh, and then, you know, we just bit the bullet and he came down to my house one time with his guitar, set up a microphone, he says, try this. So we tried, 
did a charitable gig. Um, worked out quite well. It didn't work out too badly at all. And uh, further down the line, there were a few differences in creative opinion, if you like. Oh, wow, okay. um, and, uh, you know, like, like often happens in a lot of bands, you, you find that um, people come and oh, people ways. go and you, you part ways, don't you? So what's happened is, is, is quite interesting because the guys who are in the band at the moment they're essentially people that I've, I've known for years, you know, and, and guys that you would have gone to school with, yeah, probably yeah, guys yeah. slightly older than you. Um, I don't know, you know, Dave Payne and Nick Smith, uh, all Kings Norton boys. Oh, okay, yeah, and yeah. Uh, actually went to Kings Norton boys with, with uh, Paul. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, um, brilliant musicians, super musicians, and know what they're doing, know how they should be sounding. So basically and, what happened was, you got invited into the band, Usurped everyone. Hardly. No, no. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think, to be fair, what happened, what, what happened, right, if, if I'm being totally honest, what happened was that uh, there was one particular musician that we had that was quite an accomplished musician from, like, you know, we're talking 60s and 70s, slightly older boy, guitarist. And, it, it, you know, don't get me wrong, he was an excellent guitarist, he was really good. Yeah. But what happened was that... Um, he was um, becoming frustrated, or, or he well, initially he was trying to do too much on his own. Right, okay. And I, I, you know, I'm I'm no musician, but I know how something should sound. I mean, we're brought up, born, born and raised around music, weren't we? You know, my, my dad used to do shabines when we were kids. You know, and like you know, a good lick when you hear one, yeah. regardless of what the genre. You know, if something moves you, it moves you. I don't care who's playing it. Do yeah. you know what I mean? It's the truth. And um, what's happened is that. Uh, there's a sound that we were trying to create, and this guy was trying to create the sound all on his own through his, his own soul guitar playing. And I said, well, do you know something? If you're playing that lick, it needs a, another guitar in the back just accompanying the riff to just make it sound authentic, just make it sound more real. Yeah. And he was like, no, 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 we don't need it. And I says, I'll tell you what, we do. So what I've done, I've called my mate in, who I knew was just playing guitar in his bedroom, and I says, come on down and... Uh, he played for a while, and when he played, it just worked. But the guy who was the accomplished musician didn't like the idea because Shared someone else. So, so rather than rather than him be more generous about um, sharing his knowledge or expertise, he, he was really being quite negative and damning around it. And uh, eventually, there were conflicts. And I said, "Well, do you know something? If this is only a hobby, it's supposed to be enjoyable. And if it's not being enjoyed," Then you know it's it's Not a good idea. idea. It's a good idea that you know you you do one sort of thing. You know you you go and uh, do your own thing because I don't need it. You know, um, so it, it kicked on from there. And uh, then you know I asked Dave to come along, Dave Payne, um, and later Nick Smith, and it's all gone from there. So yeah, it's all good. It's all good. Nice and steady. What do you feel like? Obviously, you've been together for two years with your all. Yeah, just under two years. Yeah, two and years this March actually. And you're yeah. doing what's the group called? Catwalk Villains. Catwalk Villains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're doing well. We're doing okay. Was, the diary's full. Yeah. The diary's full. This is what I was going to say. Yeah, Did yeah. you have that expectation, or is it, not it at all? Like, no, no, it's it's an interesting one because all of us um, in the band, we, we all have our respective careers, so. We've got a, you know, um, Dave's a chemist by trade, um, uh, of some repute, you know. Yeah. Um, Nick is a, a, a builder, plasterer. Uh, we've got another guy who, Tim, 
Tim Hughes, another guitarist who uh, runs his own leisure firm, uh, leisure equipment, camping equipment, okay. things like yeah, that, yeah. and does exhibitions and supplies um, people in the industry up and down the country. Um, there's myself and uh, the drummer. We've all got our respective careers, so there was no expectation really to actually sort of kick on and make it big, so to speak. We were a bunch of guys who happened to know each other who just wanted to have a good time, yeah, yeah, yeah. and we just wanted to see where it brought us. And, and to be fair, um, it, it's brought us sort of relative success, sort of you know within the local sort of music scene. Yeah. Um, my personal view is that I think there are people out there who are still sort of getting to grips. Who were, were a very sort of rock, yes, dirty blues guitar driven, riff blues. stomping grooves um, that probably doesn't sort of uh, entirely fit with the sort of historical and traditional sort of sounds that are out there in sort of southwest Birmingham you know yeah, yeah, yeah which is yeah. which is a very sort of easy bluesy sort of rocky easy going sound easy blues, yeah. so we're a bit more avant-garde really we're a bit more in your face in terms of the material and what we like to do and how we like to sound so not everyone's covered tea but you know it's what makes the world go around isn't exactly. it yeah absolutely absolutely do you guys write your own stuff or well, we, we've done a little bit of writing, not a great deal, uh, but Dave, who's the main guitarist, is a prolific songwriter, and uh, we benefit from his expertise because he's been on the circuit for a while, as has Nick, the bass player. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, there, there are things that we cover, and um, it, as much as you do a cover, you try to put your own slant on the interpretation. And, um, you know, we, we try to do that and it works out quite well. As I say, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the fact that the door is fairly full. And we've got a situation where, because we all work, yeah, there, there are times where we're lucky enough to actually um, turn people down. People are coming to us and we're saying, well, you know, thanks, but unfortunately we can't do that. Um, but it works out quite well. It works out very nicely. Mm. What do you bring in terms of, like, because I'm not really musical at all really so how do you bring like your influences to that and what are your influences do you know what I mean growing up musically what, yeah musically what was yeah. what was your music well I, I've said earlier on that um, my personal view is that I was always sort of grounded in music you know I was brought up in music you know from from I mean my, my parents came over in the uh uh, late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. Windrush. So, yeah, part of the Windrush generation. Um, and it was hard to be part of that generation and not have music in your DNA. And, um, you know, so, of course, you know, you're brought up in the in the reggae music of the time, you know. Um, so that was the early 70s, you know, so as soon as you could sort of uh, stand up, you know, your dad's having parties and your uncles and aunties are there and everybody's putting the booze on the table and they're throwing the, you know, the tuppence on the floor to make you dance and all that. And you're feeling it, you're feeling yeah, it yeah. good. You know, your stereograms there, you know, you know, your deckers and your HMV systems and stuff like that, you know. And now, so you're grounded in it, you know. It's everywhere you go, on the street, in your house. It's everywhere you go, your friends, you know. So it's it was one of those sort of inductions, really. And then... Um, Later on, you know, um, when we were at school, sort of mid-70s, you had the birth of all of that sort of um, two-tone stuff, didn't you? You know, the specials and people yeah. like that. They came on the scene, you know, when we were kids and we were all jumping around to stuff like that. But in the back, 
you still had the reggae, you still had your, your grounding, yes. you still had your That's fundamentals, strong. your foundations, you know, what your parents bought. But I remember, um, it was quite funny actually, I remember uh, I was always a roots and culture man. So I love my burning spear. I love my... Uh, different, different Birmingham, right? No, no, Birmingham Spear. Winston Rodney's from, from J.A. Still, still Pulse, I'm thinking of. Yeah, still Pulse. Still Pulse were on the scene around the same time. But I was a roots and culture man. I love my dubwise, you see. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I love my burning spear. I love my Michael Prophet, um, um, Freddie McGregor, all these guys. And it was like a militant sound, you know. It wasn't any of this lover's rock, you know. As much as lover's rock, people, a lot of people love the lover's rock. But I was never really into the lovers' rock, so it, it was always a militant message for me. It was always <laughs> an angry message, and it was always. I'm the same. Like I've, yeah. I've always grown up listening to more roots and culture than the, than the lovers' rock. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. My granddad was well into like, um, like the Christian kind yeah, of yeah, reggae, yeah. like yeah. Glenn Washington and yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I always preferred the roots and culture. Yeah, stuff. yeah. I, I think, I think, uh, I think it was. If I look back and, and look at why I was into it, um, I'd probably be inclined to be into it because of the uh, socio-political sort of political difficulties yes. young black guys in particular were going through of the time. Any time between sort of 1975, probably draw a demarcation line in, in that decade that is 75 to 85. Um, you know, we had... Uh, national Front all This was around the time of the National Front. The National Front had gathered momentum pretty much in the 70s, you know, sort of early and mid-70s. And uh, and uh, so you had the likes of the National Front, you know, uh, later came the British Movement. Uh, and all these organisations were out there and, and the, their sole aim primarily was to uh, oppress, subjugate, target, call it what you will, um, anyone who was slightly different at the time, whether they be black, whether they be Asian or of any other, other sort of um, ethnicity. Uh, but these groups were out there. But it's interesting because I, I personally believe that uh, the music would not have been that good had there not been something to Fight genuinely fight against. Yeah, yeah, you've got to have that um, uh, degree of uh, conflict, social conflict. Well, yeah. we, we were saying on a podcast not long ago, Is it does better art come from dark places? I, I think I think historically I think it probably has you know when you listen to a lot of music lyrically regardless of the genre I mean like I say we were into roots and culture you know Dennis Brown was having tunes like Slave Driver mm. you know and uh, um, Gregory Isaacs had, had tunes like Mr Know It All you know and, and, and stuff like that and these these were kicking tunes they were saying something you know what I'm yeah, saying yeah. and uh, you know I still play them now you know, if I if I'm on the if I'm on my phone and I've got a yeah. train journey to do wherever, and it's a you know it's a it's a long enough journey. Listen, mate, I'm getting on there, and it's like Michael Prophet. You know, it's uh, it's Prince Farai, Voice of the Poor. You know what I'm saying? So you know, I'll, I'll still sort of uh, in my heart, I still have a special place for that kind of thing because I know that that's where personally I'm at. You know. Yeah. Do you yeah. think it's the same for young people today? You know, I mean, now it's what grime, drill. It's obviously not the same music, yeah. but it's still the same. Social. The social makeup is the same, isn't it? Yeah, the the components, just... the components haven't changed, mm. have they? I, I don't believe that, that. You know, the social component that that is the stimulus for that kind of creativity. I, I personally don't believe it's changed that much. Yeah. I think. Uh, 
I think it was uh, Akala, uh, you know, the young guy. Yes, um, brilliant. Yeah, poet and uh, social commentator. Yes. Um, He he was giving mention to the recent rise in knife crime and and what he said was really quite constructive, I thought. I mean, it was quite accurate in that the the social uh, component... The demographic of the people who are committing that type of crime it hasn't essentially changed you know but what you do have is this notion of uh, what people might call a moral panic where they look at certain individuals and say it's you it's you it's you and when you look at it wider in terms of the social aspect yeah. of what's going on um you know uh we, 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 we've got something yeah absolutely we've got something that's been there for hundreds of years and um you know well, there's, there's more of a light shed on it now as well because everyone's got a camera phone. Everyone's got the internet. Well, yeah, Everyone, yeah. It's not as easy to sweep under the rug, is no, it? No, no. It's accessible. It's there. You it know, it's there. exposed. There's a social exposure to it to it now that, that wasn't there Never before. Been. So whereas people were saying that, you know, we're being oppressed or we're being targeted, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think there's evidence for that now. Yeah. And it's cogent evidence, isn't it? It's something that's tangible, something you can hang your hat on and say, do you know something? Persuade me in the alternative that this ain't happening. You know, when you've got the evidence there, it's hard to refute, isn't it? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I think, um, so, was you saying then before that you don't, because you know you hear a lot about music, I'm not sure if that's Mm. when you was growing up, but I say, you know, these young kids are listening to grime music Mm. and they're going out and Mm. stabbing each other. Mm. Whereas I don't believe that's correct because you never hear it about the watching um, films, movies, yeah, and yeah. going out and trying to it's shoot people, strange, and, yeah, yeah, things like that. But it always seems to come back to the music. Do you think that's just because we as black men have more control over our music? Like we don't really control the film industry mm. or you know other social media outlets or whatever, but within the music we've kind of always had that this is our music kind of thing so yeah. they try and like bring it down in that sense if you see what I mean uh, it's, it's an interesting question because um, historically um, and traditionally um, because of the social makeup of, of where we stood in society our music was always underground yeah. And because something was always underground, that sort of automatically, you know, for, for the societal sort of um, hierarchy or authorities, that yeah. brings about a curiosity, doesn't it? And it's often an unhealthy curiosity that they have. I mean, um, I remember uh, the, the notion that people would have a blues or a shubin back in the late 70s, early 80s. And one of the big things that people would do was uh, call the police on a shubin and the police would raid a shubin and everybody would get turfed out and equipment would be taken. The birth of pirate radio, you know, pirate radio by definition meant that your music was underground. It wasn't ordinarily getting the light of day. Yeah, so it was an acquired taste. There were only certain people who would tune into, you know, PCRL, People's Community Radio line at the time was carrying the swing. And uh, I used to listen to PCRL on a regular basis and uh, and uh, it wasn't uncommon for you to hear, turn it off now, turn it off now. You know? and that was the police, that was the police gate crashing the radio party, you know what I mean? And uh, so it was an unhealthy curiosity that the authorities had with it. Yeah. And what they'd do is um, they'd make an assumption that it wasn't a good thing. And it's, it's interesting how over decades, you know, the birth of like the likes of, I don't know, 
Kiss FM. Kiss FM was a pirate radio station when it yeah. first kicked off. Was it really? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was one of these stations in London that it was it was licensed, but they only licensed it for a certain period of time, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then eventually they, uh, they, they, they became more sort of accepted as being part of the mainstream. But they had to fight. They had to fight. Them guys did. London stations, they had to fight big time. Radio 1, what's that all about? That was all it was at one stage. Do you think it's harder to be like talking about London? Do you think there's that you need to be in London to be an artist or to be successful? Or has the internet kind of destroyed that? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I've got to be honest. I, I really don't know that much about how that sort of uh, area or industry shaped up. Um, but what I do know is that uh, there's a certain sort of type of underground music yeah. That is very London centric, isn't it? Yeah. It strikes me as so, I mean, you're not exactly hearing like uh, what do they call it, trap or whatever. You, you know, it's not exactly co- it's not exactly coming out of Preston, is it? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, but but what I what I am aware of is that I know there's there's a young lad who, who's making waves at the moment in Manchester by the name of Banco. Right. Yeah, and uh, and he is bringing you know you know these guys bring a London vibe. You know, how's life in London? Um, they're bringing a London vibe, but Banco's bringing a, an authentically Manchester, Mancunian vibe, and it seems to be going down quite well. There's yeah. another H. There's another guy called H. He's very, very Manchester orientated. And it's a shame in a way because we're here. In the heart of Birmingham, we're supposed to be. To we're say, supposed to be just, the second city. You I was know, literally just about to say like, why is it like Birmingham? Like, we could say that, but there are artists from Birmingham. Yeah, it's been yeah, a while now. yeah. Plenty, plenty yeah. on the horizon at the minute. I think. Yeah, I, I made a conscious effort to kind of monitor a lot of people that are doing okay. things in Birmingham, and, and like, there's some brilliant artists something about like, Call Me Unique, D, T Rods. Yeah, there's loads, there's loads, there is actually loads to name a few here. Mm-hmm. Souls doing well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. What are they bringing though? Are they bringing some, something really conscious and and meaningful, or is it just the it's same? Because I'm 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 trying to I'm trying to find a, you know, some of the guys that you know in London. I mean, it's lyrically um, terrible. Not the best. I'm trying to take a diplomatic <laughs> view. It's, it's, it doesn't strike me as being the most. Uh, it's horses creative, horses, you know. Um, for me, I think a lot of you get a lot of shine in London, but I know that I have been out locally and heard artists more creative, better vocally. But do you know what the mad thing is? The artists that do seem to check the most dribble seem to do better. Mm. It's like people want to hear the ignorant stuff, yeah, they yeah. want it like, because there can't be no other explanation, yeah. Either that. Or record execs or whoever's pushing these records have got an agenda. Yeah, yeah. It's either it's one of the two, isn't it? Because yeah. I'm gonna throw some. I'm not even gonna throw some names out there because like I don't yeah, want to offend. I personally think though it's a more of a case of yeah, I think a lot of these artists are young. Like we're talking about like eighteen, mm-hmm. to even remember being eighteen, nineteen, twenty. You can only speak your truth, like mm-hmm. so. I, I do think the people that are guiding them, guide them that way because you're malleable. You don't know the industry. Mm. You've just come in. So it's kind of like, well, we know this works. 
So just push that message. Mm. If you push it, but I sometimes I actually think the artist doesn't realise he's pushing a negative message because mm. to him it's kind of like, well that is what I've seen every day. But he doesn't want to talk about the good things he sees every day because mm. it's again like so you said like music's born from the pain like the mm. darkness in the essence. So no one wants, no one really wants to hear you talking about good stuff all the time. It's not it's mm. not thinking about your brain. The same as what makes you monitor the news and watch the news. Mm. It's the negative stuff that really sticks with you and that mm. really makes an effort makes it, um, an impact. It does because mm. you always what it does is it. it peaks up your fight or flight responses, mm. whereas good things don't. So when you're hearing about badness and you're witnessing badness, you, your body does latch onto it because it's something for you to take aware of. It's kind of like, I, I know it's bad things because I'm learning from it. It's kind of like, mm. right, I've just seen that. I don't want to be in that situation. Yeah, so I yeah, want to remember yeah, that situation yeah. a thousand times more yeah. than I'm going to remember something good because yeah. yeah. I don't want to put myself in that, mm. in that predicament. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's tough. I think it's tough for musicians out there because, like you said, there's great band, for example, um, not band, but a group called Hawkhouse. Mm-hmm. Very conscious hip hop. Mm-hmm. Some of the best like lyricists I've heard come out of London in ages. Yeah, but I think I think that therein for me lies the problem because I, I personally believe that um, if if I was to take a, a cross section of um, where I'm at in terms of where I where I grew up, how I grew up, the nature of the music that I was exposed to, the nature of the music that I've heard heard over the years. What I do know is that, yeah, um, a lot of that negative experience has brought out some really good creativity, yes. right? But what I find interesting as well is that you you don't only get the good creativity, um, you 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 get this this ability to actually produce a piece of work that is melodic. It is um, harmonious. It's really well put together, and and it's it's well thought out. Yeah. I'm struggling to see where the creative quality is in a lot of the stuff that's out there today. So yeah. you know, I mean, if you took hip hop from let's say anything from 1990 through to about 1998 yeah. there was some bloody good stuff going down there 100%. right and i'm just like i'm just saying well West. yeah i'm just saying and and it was wide ranging as well wasn't it it was yeah. quite a different um, experience that people were drawing on and i'm just wondering where that creative creativeness has gone or, or where is it now uh, you know who, who's bringing it to the table like like them guys used to bring it to the table but then again having said that you know, social media has a lot to answer for at the moment, doesn't it? Because, uh, you know, um, we we were spoiled by the fact that we that we, we were anticipating a lot of music then, weren't we? We, we were, well, what's going to come next? What's coming next? What's coming? Yeah. And we, you, you genuinely had an appetite for it. Whereas now you're almost like saturation coverage. Mm-hmm. And it's and we're probably missing because we think, oh, not again. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, yeah, you, you're almost, it's almost sensory overload, isn't it? I, I don't know. Well, would you say um, would you say that you don't get a lot of like timeless music anymore like you used to? Do you do you do you still think that people make music that's timeless, or do you think they intentionally make throwaway music? For, not necessarily, not necessarily just throwaway, but stuff for the time. Like you know, 
if there's a certain sound because I know yeah 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 it's 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 I think I think it's a good question because I I think it's different things for different people and it's different things for different times as well isn't it you know because uh, I'll give you a, a simple example. One of the things that they still hark on about today in music is this idea that um, all of these great people came together at one show in 69, Woodstock in the right, US, yeah, yeah. Right, upstate New York, Woodstock. And I, I, I still believe today that um, when you think about the artists who performed there, right, many, many great artists all performing at the one venue in front of something like half a million people, probably more than that, you know. Um, you've got nowadays the, the, the corporate influence, the fact that the marketing men have taken over music and it's a big money concern, whereas it was something that brought people together. Yeah. And I, I don't know that... Uh, the natural creativity of a human being is being nurtured anymore. No, the natural, the natural creativity. That's exactly what I was thinking when you said about the the nineteen nineties. Yes. Rock. Yeah. It's the same thing, yeah. It? I it think became, you're right. Became, yeah. Became, like what we were talking about the other day, it became more of a mainstream thing. Yeah. Yeah. Over yeah. Time. yeah. And in that, with that, you get the record execs or the record company saying, oh, this yeah. is this is yeah. what you got. To, this is what you need to sound. Like, this is what you need to yeah. push." Yeah. And it takes away from their artistic. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Forced to fit and conform to yeah. this sort of. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. But isn't it going full circle? Because we had, you know, the nineties, late nineties, started to the noughties, two thousands. You know, where everyone wanted to be on a label, but with the rise in social media, you know, now we need SoundCloud. Yeah. So it's kind of like now artists aren't looking to even have deals. Mm -hmm. It's kind of just like, you know, if you can make your own, mm -hmm. you can build your own audience now, can't you? So if you're clever, you can, you can kind of be creative still mm -hmm. and you can make money. You may not be getting record sales, cause, but I don't really know who measures on record sales anymore. It's about mm -hmm. touring. And, yeah, yeah. What yeah. I would say is even still, even if you're independent, if you want to be noticed, you've got to sound a little bit like someone else. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. People... People don't really want. People don't really listen to people until everyone else starts listening to them. And no, everyone else yeah, listen yeah. To them. But that's yeah. just life. It's the same reason why, you know, we call us a Christian country, Catholics. You know, Catholics believe in one God, but why they got so many saints? It's because all the saints were taken from the Celtics. Mm. It's just a thing because people like what they know. The people when they hear something alien, mm. it's kind of like, whoa! I don't know. Yeah. This is making me feel a bit weird. Mm. Like, I don't know how to feel about this. Like, as humans, we don't really like change, do we? No, mm. definitely. And, and what's more is that as, as, as human beings, simply, you know, part of our makeup is that we discriminate, don't we? We, we, we choose... We choose that you know whether something feels good, and it's often the case that when we choose, we're choosing in numbers, aren't we? We're choosing, like you say, because somebody else yeah. thinks that that might be a good idea. Mm -hmm. So you know, uh, to avoid feeling different, mm -hmm. we we might go down a certain route. We might go down a certain route because it's comfortable, because it's safe. It's safe in numbers, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So you know, your mavericks, which is what we all want, your, your creative genius, which only comes around, appears to come around once in a lifetime. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and historically they get torn down at the start. No, no, they're usually ahead of their time. They get torn yeah. down. Years later, they die or something happens, and then it's like, oh, this person was a genius. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's partly ourselves 
we have to blame though because I can remember like getting albums, like big album, big one for me, timeless, one of the most timeless albums of all time for me personally is Lauren Hill. Yeah, like, yeah. Is that, is that the miseducation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's top, yeah. top yeah. three records of all time, it's got to be. Exactly. For me, anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So for me, that's what I can always remember that. But I remember listening to that till that CD snaps. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like I'd put yeah. it on and that was all I was listening to. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I just listened to it track after track after track. Not even skipping nothing. I was yeah. listening to the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. But when we find an album, like you said, isn't it up to us? The music's out there, but we don't have to just be like, yeah, I'm going to listen to this for like a week yeah. and then I'm just going to like throw it away. Like, I listen to albums over and over. I'll tell you whose album I love as well, which if it was back in that, it would have been timeless. You know, Solange's album, Beyonce's, I can't even remember what the album's called. Yeah, Seat at the Table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful, like, when you say like a soulful album yeah. and not mainstream, you know, mm-hmm. you've got your sister who's Beyonce who's just, Incredible artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But her sister makes a record that I think is better than anything she's ever done. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's, it is to me probably like I could go back and pull it on and I'll say, yeah, that's a timeless album. I know I could listen to it in 10 years and be like, yeah, this was like mm. the leak. So is it is it up to us to hold on to the music? We might have to sift through, you know, more shit, but surely. It is down to us to like make these yeah, records on us. I've, I've consciously made an effort lately when an album comes out, if I like the sound of it, I will listen to it and listen to it and listen to it and listen to it. Because that's what mm. you, is what you used to do, isn't it? You, you, see, you can afford one record at a time. Yeah, you play it, it death, mm. rinse it. And now it's like so readily available, it's it's almost, it's just disposable to you. Like, like I've listened to like, I'm not even going to say his name, but I say it on every single one. Sure, go on, say it, do it. <laughs> Kanye. Okay, I, I listened okay. to his latest album yeah. twice. Yeah. Now, this is a person I rate as, a, as an artist, as a, as a producer. Da, 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 da. I listened to it and I thought to myself, yeah, it's all right. But I've just not gone back to it just because yeah. there's so much material out there that you haven't explored. Yeah. It's like I'll come back to it eventually, but that's not how it should be, should it? Yeah. yeah. It should be like, you know, Open you to have your eyes and, and you appreciate them, and you yeah. appreciate what they've done, and you listen and you, you break down the yeah. lyrics, you break down the songs, and da, da, da. But yeah. nowadays it's like you don't even play a full album anymore. You put you put an artist on and then shuffle, and it'll be a different artist every track. And then sometimes yeah. you know, I don't know, maybe yeah, it's just yeah, too yeah. many features. Do you know? Do you know? As far as like, uh, I mean, we're we're a bunch of dudes, every everyday ordinary common or garden dudes sitting around the table having a chat about music. Do you, do, you, do you think there's, you know, um, look, we're, we're three black guys talking music here, right? And you've talked about classic albums. And the the, the albums that you've talked about are, are, are black artists, essentially. <laughs> Is it, do, do, you, do you think there might be some sort of an unconscious bias that we might have toward black music? Because no. there, there's, a, there's a lot of music that's out there that we haven't given mention to yeah. that just happens to be. It's true. You know. I was, I was thinking that. Yeah. About when I said Lauren Hill was in my top three albums, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a bit of a strong shot because there's so much material out there, but yeah. I still would put it in my top three. Yeah. But I'm eclectic, man. I'm, I'm a yeah, eclectic person. Yeah, I listen yeah, to, I listen yeah. to anybody. Yeah. If it's as you said earlier, yeah. If it's if it's a good if sound, it feels, yeah, if yeah, it moves, yeah. 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 Like, yeah. But 
I will. It's not even unconscious. I will consciously make an effort to seek out okay. more yeah. soulful black eyes. Yeah. Even saying soulful nowadays, you can't yeah. because a few years and ago, now, all the soul music was coming out of like Sweden and and, and uh, Germany. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. I, I just find it an interesting. It's a, it's a it's an interesting subject matter because uh, I remember when I was of an age. Um, as as my, my, the first lick I heard, rock lick that moved me was was a track by a, a band called Cream in the early seventies, and they had this track called White Room. A guy called Eric Clapton. Remember Eric Clapton, yeah, yeah, yeah. guitarist? Yeah. Well, well, they they had the, a track called the White Room, and as a youngster, um, you know, no more than I don't know seven or eight years of age, I heard this on, on, on the radio. We used to have radios. We never really had all the equipment. <laughs> you guys have got, you know, but, you know, it was just on the radio, you know. And even then you had to pinch it off the old man in the hope that he wasn't listening to the cricket or something like that, you know. And I remember the, the first lick I heard, it was on the, a local radio station called BRMB. And they, they had this um, DJ by the name of Robin Valk, who's still out there doing the circuit at the moment. And... Uh, he played a track by uh, Cream called The White Room and I thought it was the first track I heard that genuinely moved first rock track that I heard guitar driven yeah. tune um, that, that, that genuinely moved me as a kid and I've got to be honest after I heard that as much as I loved it my bias there was a genuine bias that I had Back towards black white. music and, and it was to the detriment of a lot of good stuff that was out there you, you, know, you know what I mean and, and I was just uh, I was just wondering if, if that isn't probably often indicative of uh, a lot of young people nowadays that, that you know definitely I you know we, we deprive so. we deprive ourselves of, of a lot of good material that's out there you know I've never listened to a Beatles album yeah well I'll tell you what you need to listen to Sergeant Pepper if you want to listen yeah. to a Beatles album before, I've yeah. listened to every bit this yeah. is the thing yeah. I'm very black music um, I remember back in the day like I used to go down to my exes and her family were mad on the Beatles. Yeah, like, yeah. Loved them. Absolutely. And I was always just like, yeah. I never listened to it. It weren't really played in my house. Like, I don't Listen, know why. Them guys, them saying, guys, them guys back in the day, they were jumping, I'm telling you. You know, but jumping. People saying they're the greatest, they're the greatest. Yeah, ever. So yeah. I went back and I listened to every single Beatles album and I was yeah. like, you know what? I like it. But it's still enough Stevie Wonder. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. I like, yeah, yeah. But there aren't many out there that are Stevie Wonder, are there, yeah, yeah, to be yeah, fair? Yeah. But this you is know. what I'm saying. So I, but, I, yeah. I, I grew up, I didn't grow up just listening to black music because like, my dad was white. Yeah. He would always control the stereo in the yeah, car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Driving up to Scotland. Yeah, He'd be like yeah. Everly Brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, Eric yeah. Clapton. My yeah. mum likes a bit of Michael Bolton and cheesy and people, as it is. I like Black Who? M people, simply red, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because the the very people that you've just mentioned, Michael Bolton, simply red, all these guys. Um, when when you when you look closer at the bands, they're an eclectic band. They have people from every ethnicity playing, you know, contributing to the quality of the music they lay down, and and it's interesting that. I've always been one of these people who's wanted to open his mind up to what's going on around him. Yes. And I remember uh, a while ago, uh, or oh, we're in 2019 now, probably the best part of 20 years ago now, I went down to London, to Camden, to the Jazz Cafe, and uh, I went to see a guy by the name of Bob James, 
and uh, he, he did a lot of. Uh, do you know? Do you know if you're listening to a movie and you come across a part in the movie that seems to be really quiet, laid back, easy, and there's some incidental music going on in the background? Well, yeah, listen, man, that was Bob James. It was just yeah. cool. Simple piano licks, you know, nice drum beats. You know, you might have the, you know, the, the sort of flaunt of a saxophone in the back. But the bottom line is that it was just a funky lick and it was Bob James. Yeah. It was a funky little groove. And, you know, it doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be heavy, but it can just be there, right? And it was Bob James. And I'll tell you, I went with my mate, um, Howard Hansel. And when this guy walked into this venue... He walked in as if he was, you know, he, he had this um, like floral Hawaiian shirt on, you know, and the guy's got like long grey hair and glasses. He looked like your geography teacher. My, me and my mate just turned around, Bob James, Bob James, oh, this guy's a legend. You know, you look at his back catalogue and it's unbelievable, you know. Um, he, he got his influence from um, Donny Hathaway. And uh, his piano playing was just sublime. It's just absolutely brilliant. And he played with all the best musicians. And this guy was like, you couldn't get a more sort of white, you know, uh, you know, lower middle class dude. You yeah. know what I mean? And he was, he was just one. He was probably one of the most funky dudes on the planet. Trust me. And decades later, well, well, well I'm talking about early two thousands, but decades before that, you know, sort of in the eighties, mid eighties. You had guys like uh, Grandmaster Flash sampling stuff that Bob James had written, you know. Um, uh, stuff was, piano licks were pinched by Africa Bambata. Do you, yeah, do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And, and, but, but, you know, these guys are all out there and the, the one thing that they often have in common is that they all have this eclectic mix in terms of the band, yes. you know. And uh, you, you can't ignore it, man. It's... Well, music ultimately brings people together, doesn't it? I mean, you can't... I don't think anyone can doubt that. Like, you see it from kids. Oh, like, yeah. Kids, I don't know why kids are so feel, but when they hear music... Yeah. They just, they just know, like, the body just wants to move. It's so like, the question is, when are we all going to listen to some decent country, man? I mean, you know, there's some good country out there. <laughs> There's you know some good country out there. There's this, this puzzle. Like, not country, but like, you know, like Montford. Yeah. What do you mm. guys say? It's called folk. I don't mind folk. See, I like, I do like a lot of white artists like um, Paolo Latini. Love Paolo Latini. But to me, it's more like the message. Yeah. What are people saying? Like, I like yeah. words. That's yeah. me. Yeah. words. Yeah. So when I'm listening. Well, you get into some Hank Williams Jr. You get into some yeah. Hank Williams the third. You know what I mean? These guys are good. You know what I mean? And they're steeped in country. And the what? Well, it's an interesting one because, like, like you say, the message. You know, earlier we were saying how, how a lot of good music is born out of oppression. Yeah. This is what these guys do. You know, you, you know, you got your rhythm and blues from the deep south and all this, and it's often like the old black man's blues. Yeah, yeah. Listen, there's a lot of guys out there, some white guys, country boys, who are mixing and collaborating with these guys and they're producing some fantastic stuff. You know, their own style and uh, doesn't get the light of day often. Yeah, I can imagine. I don't know why that, but country's a massive market. It's oh, probably yeah. one of the biggest music markets there is. You know, mm. I didn't really start listening to like bluesy stuff and uh, like rocky rock stuff. Mm. Like recently, you know the Alabama Shakes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Alabama, Alabama Shakes, Shakes, Alabama Three. Yeah, I'm yeah. Back to what you said. Yeah. The reason that I probably 
fuck, oh, what's this? It's because I've seen a video of them and the yeah. lead singer is black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Gary Clark Jr. Listen, massive fan, massive fan. Love him, man. He's La- like, massive fan. But you can tell his influences have come from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's only a young guy, you know. Yeah, he's only a young guy. And uh, he was one of these guys who, who stayed true to, to the art. Mm-hmm. Um was offered certain things in terms of being swept away by the big record companies and he refused because it was compromising his artistic creativity. Yeah. And uh, he's just recently come out with a track that has caused a lot of controversy in the United States because I think the track is something like, uh, um, this is not America or it's not my America or something like that. And it's it's a genuine sort of slight towards the Trump administration. Yeah, yeah, that kind of vibe, you know, yeah, definitely. But um, Gary Clark's with it, yeah, yeah. You know, there's a couple of Gary Clark tunes that we cover in our band, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we cover we cover Shake, um, and we also cover I Don't Know You A Thing, which is uh, not a bad tune if, it's, if you're a bloke, but it's a naughty tune if you're a young lady. Uh, it's about a breakup, basically. But no, it's it's a he plays some good licks, and he plays he plays for a lot of uh, charities over in the states. Mm. So um, charities like Farm Aid, you know, he's always there front and center. And my understanding is that he does a lot of these charitable gigs pro bono. He does them for free. Mm. Um, so the guy's got a lot of integrity behind his work. You know, yeah, he's a decent man, yeah. thoroughly decent man. Now, obviously, Gary, Go more on. than just the music. So I want to know, like, what, what's, what are you thinking about, like, the state of the country at the minute, especially in terms of the knife crime, which is absolutely, well, I want to know your thoughts on it. Is it huge at the minute, or is it like we just said earlier, it's just been a light's been shed on it? Mm. And what can we do to stop it? I, I think it's I, I think it's a terrible situation. I think it's a sad situation. I really do. Um, and uh, it, it's uh, the, the nature of uh, the killings is pretty brutal stuff. I mean, anything with a knife is brutal stuff. But it, it's 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 been shown up to be really quite brutal in terms of uh, you know um, there are certain things that go with it. it the nature of the perpetrator, um, the circumstances of the victims, the vulnerability of the victims, um, the communities that it's blighting. Um, uh, I mean, two areas that I've I've worked in, um, London and Manchester, have been massively hit by it. I mean, there are other areas with respect, but um, I, I just find it really quite sad because there's still... For me, that, that there's been a lot of good work that's been ongoing with trying to intervene with people who are finding circumstances, social circumstances, life circumstances quite difficult. And um, it, it saddens me that uh, we're still getting it to the extent that we are. And media doesn't help. Um, media does not help. But look, let's cut to the chase. There's a lot of young black men killing each other for whatever reason. Do you think this is a black issue? I, I think it's partially a black issue, yes. I think it's a, it's, it's a societal issue. 
I think it's a socio-economic issue. We mentioned the Carla the other day and uh, earlier on and uh, what he said a few days ago around the fact that the social structures that uh, reinforce this kind of behaviour happening in, in over 200 years, 300 years, have not changed, you know. Um, it just so happens that, you know, 200 years ago, the, the young guys who were committing these crimes were, you know, you're disenfranchised, you know, you're socially and emotionally isolated young men, you know. Um, you know, you've, you've got the added dynamic now of things like immigration that have taken place and, like, we have, we, you know, I'm, I'm, like, you know, second-generation Caribbean. And... Um, you know, you had things like this that were going on in the 70s, but they probably didn't get the same sort of social exposure, to be fair. Um, and uh, latterly, um, yes, you still have deprivation. You still have uh, people who are, um, you know, uh, disadvantaged in, in many ways. But in all honesty, as much as you, we look at that, my, my personal view, if, if I'm being totally honest, is that we're probably looking in the wrong direction because... There's a lot of young people who are growing up in these circumstances who aren't carrying knives. Nice. Yeah. There's a lot of young people who are growing up around these disadvantages who are kicking against the flow, you would, you know, and, and, and are trying to make things positive for themselves. Yeah. Look, I'm talking to two guys who might have been, you know, comfortably, given your ages, yeah. victims or potentially perpetrators of that kind of thing. Just by virtue of where 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 you've grown up and and the the you know the the, the social economic background yeah, of, yeah. of where you live, you well, know. This is where I get to. Um, I don't really know my views on it quite so much because myself, I have been. Do you know what I mean? I've been like I've been stabbed three times. Yeah, yeah. Growing up, but I've never felt the need to feel like. I want to go and stab someone else. So where were these young men being hardwired? Is it like when they were young? Because mm. I know I'd have, I've always had good family support. That's the one thing I can always... You, you, you probably answer your own question there, in, in, in my view. Mm. And, and, and I think um, you, you, what we do know, and, and it isn't just anecdotal evidence, what we do know is that sort of absentee father not just an absentee father, but an absentee father who might be really positive mm, yeah. in terms of his uh, his role. You know, um, I, I, I look around me, for instance, I mean, um, I know you and I know your family quite well. Yes. I, I know you less so. But what I do know is the people around you. Yep. And uh, I, I'm not sort of saying uh, and, and I wouldn't you know blow hot air under anyone's ass and, yeah, and yeah. say this that and the other but what I do know is that um, there are certain things in life that you can regard as being fundamentally safe in terms of how you might want to um, be involved in, in, in bringing children up and the one thing is is that you're ever present yeah. and the people around you were ever present so they were there at your every triumph. They were there at your every disaster. And they were there unequivocally. There were no excuses as to why they couldn't be there mm -hmm. if you needed to lean on them. Yeah, definitely. Right? Now, um, I know through my profession 
that uh, a lot of the guys who are involved in this type of crime, we're talking expressive violence, instrumental violence, there are absentee parents, not just fathers, absentee parents. Mum might be there, but in name only. She's not doing anything that might be remotely what you might call meaningful because yeah, yeah. or progressive because she, through circumstances, she, she has battles, mm. you know. Um, where's it coming from? I've got to be honest. <sighs> you know, the, the, the social deprivation, emotional deprivation is a massive... Look, if, you, if you're socially or emotionally deprived, you're going to get your, 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 your links or your, your values wherever elsewhere, you yeah. wherever you can. Your support networks and stuff. Your support networks, yeah, absolutely. You'll get them from, from wherever. If someone shows you some notion of love or you perceive it to be some notion of love, hey, listen, they're good all day long, twice on a Sunday. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're not going to compromise that because it makes you feel, it makes you feel good, you know. Part of something. Part, part of something. A sense of belonging. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. From a young age and through school and things like that. But what I'm conscious of as well is that I, I am not prepared to make excuses for these guys who want to carry knives. Yes. I'm not Definitely. prepared to do that. I'm not prepared to say, do you know something? I understand why you're doing that because I don't want to understand. I don't want to normalise this bullshit. Yeah. Right? Yeah, Let's yeah, cut yeah. to the chase here. Yeah. Let's be clear. Right? Yeah. you got a knife yeah. and you want to go and chiv someone. You want, to, you, want, you want to go and take a life. What the fuck is going on in your life that you want to take someone else's? Yeah. Come on. Is that self-hate? Pers persuade me. Persuade me that you want to take someone's life and you legitimise You legitimise it. Help me out. Mm -hmm. I'm all ears. I'm listening. Yeah. Because there's nothing you can bring to the table remotely that will ever convince Justified. me that yeah. you can justify this bullshit. And, I, and, and you know something, mate? Um, the, 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 don't get me wrong. I, I, yes, there's a portion of blame that needs to go on the individual in terms of taking responsibility. Yes. But listen, as a structure, as a social structure, in terms of justice, we fail. This country, this government fails. Right, because we are so preoccupied with the bullshit notion of what we need to do being right, we forget what is effective. Right, yep. so you guys are carrying a knife. I'm not going to say to you, Aaron, put on the knife. I'm not going to say, put the knife down now, young sir. Put the knife. I'm saying, put that fucking thing down, mister, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah. you ain't doing anybody any good with it, right? I, I, listen, I don't care who you are, right? It's about doing what's effective and rather than... Do, and what's effective ain't always pleasant, yeah, right? Definitely. What's effective is not always pleasant. What's effective isn't pleasant, but the bottom line for me is that it has mileage because what you're doing, you're telling someone that, you know, what you're doing is fundamentally wrong, but do you know something? You're in a dark place at the moment, but you see me, I'm taking you through it. So in the hope that you're going to find light at the end of the tunnel. Now, there's not enough people out there that are doing that. And I've got to be honest with you, there's a massive problem that we have in our justice system in terms of intervening with young men who are doing this kind of thing. And that's that our justice system is over-feminised. 
There's a lot of women working in our justice system. I'm going to make myself controversial now, <laughs> and I'm not saying I'm not saying oh you know I'm not saying oh we, we you know we, we should we, you know there's a problem with women working in the justice. There's a lot of good women working in the justice system, but the vast majority of this type of crime is being perpetrated by males. If there was a if if the if, if if there were males to the extent that there are, for instance, in my service, I work in probation. If there were males to the extent in my service working in probation, there'd be uproar, you know, compared yeah, to yeah. females. The, the numbers in females. So if there's there's there's, there's like something like some stupid figure, like something like sixty eight percent of the staff within the probation structure are female. If there was sixty eight percent of the staff. Staffing structure being male, there'd be all kinds of uproar. You know, there'd be all kinds of uproar yeah. around that sort of number. Why do you think that's done then? Do you think it's because they feel that these people need to be mothered, need to be like pandered to rather than hard discipline? I think there's a, I think there are many, there are many different factors, but I think a major factor is that guys want to be paid a proper wage for doing a proper job. I don't care what anybody says. That that's the, these are fundamentals. If I'm going to ask either of you guys to do a job, rightfully so, you know, what am I being paid? That's a bloody good question. Yeah. And someone's going to try and sell you, listen, you're dealing with the most hardened criminals that this country has to offer. And they're going to say, okay, we'll give you 30 grand a year. Yeah, it's not. You're, you're, you're going to say, hold on, the risk to myself the rest of my family, if one of these guys wants to get creative and take a piece of me, and you're going to pay me 30 grand a year, 35 grand a year, you're going to say, hold the phone. That's not making a fat lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, so I, I think I think there's a lot of things. I mean, I'm not a fan of Margaret Thatcher, but, you know, back in the early 90s, she said that she once, given the, the nature of the crime that was going on at the time, there were massive issues around uh, shootings in the early 90s yes. and she was required to address it and she was saying that what she wants is guys coming out of the forces you know to go please to go to go and work in the probation services right, okay you know there was she 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 I'm not saying that she was right but she was partially right and you can't deny it there yeah. was a certain um harder lined approach to this softly softly bullshit that's proven to be ineffectual yeah. that was required with these guys and there's an, there's, there's uh, a certain intervention that's required today um that is not a pleasant intervention it's a straight talking intervention that isn't exactly something that is espoused in the um, practice policy of uh, social workers yeah. it's not there i think it's hard like for social workers because when we're talking about, I think what we have to um, actually clarify is who is committing these crimes because I think you have to deal with people who are 12, 13, 14 you know, children differently to you deal with young adults and then differently again when you're dealing with grown men because I think like now at the moment when I was growing up you had little crews and firms yeah and you might get one crate, you know, like you got that one guy. You could have like 20 mates, but there's one guy and he's like 15 and he might like hold a knife or something. Mm -hmm. But now, from what I know, when I speak to the, the youngest, there's like six, seven of them. 
It's not like a thing like before. It was one guy. Now there's that many. It's where where has it come from now? When we're talking about the probation service, I think that's later on down the line. Mm-hmm. Now a lot of people talk to me about schooling. Now I don't personally think it's got anything to do with schooling. I think school is an educational tool. School is people who school you shouldn't really teaching you about. This is my personal belief. Shouldn't be teaching you life lessons, and I always say this. I don't believe a teacher should teach a child a life lesson. I think that has to come from home. But then you come with the argument, if you haven't got the structure at home, who's meant to teach you? Mm-hmm. So I think it's hard for the government to feel like, ah, oh, you know what, we're going to go with this approach. Because I think the government have tried to mother people too much. I think that's, and I think that's what the problem is. Remember, like, just when we probably started school, before that, like, you could get beat in school. Do you know what I mean? You might have got a whack. Mm. Obviously, you're going to get people abuse power. Mm-hmm. So, but ultimately, you, you'd think that 98 or 95% of the people that are teaching your kids are good people. Mm. So, you kind of take away their power. So, then you get kids unruly in school. Mm-hmm. Then you take away the people's power on the street. Like, you can't say anything to a kid because all he has Parents to do. as well, like, you can't beat your kids no more. But this is what I'm saying. Not that it's good to beat your kids. Yeah. Like, I'm not even saying that like, you should there's, beat I, your kids, I, but. If you ask me, there's, there's circumstances which call for it. <laughs> like, I got my ass whooped when I was a kid and I needed it. Yeah, yeah, but this is what I'm saying. I needed <laughs> my beatings. Some of the things I was doing was just like, I look back and I'm like, why would you even do that? Mm. Like, I needed something to say. You definitely don't do that. Mm, mm. And mm. Be, <laughs> it's uh, it's a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because uh, you know when I, I I grew up like you know late sixties seventies and you know it was it was a given that you get a whooping off your face. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah, a given. Yeah. But but you know something. I've I'm, I've been a lucky guy because I've I'm a father of three. Um, you know my youngest is twenty eight now. Um, Paul's 36, Abby's 30, and uh, I, I feel quietly lucky that I've got three people there with a conscience, yeah. and I, I would never, you know, in my view, have, have, have treated my kids in the same way, for instance, in terms of discipline that my folks treated me. Treated you, yeah. and, and what I do know is that there are more creative ways in which you can deal with difficulties mm-hmm. um, that, as adults, we're often not amenable to. You know, because it's it takes time. Yes. I mean, my my missus, you, you know, Karen. If if I'm if I'm being totally honest, um, the person the person no, she wasn't the disciplinarian. She was the creative thinker. Yeah, whereas yeah. whereas I saw a problem and I wanted to deal with it, because that's the kind of individual I was. Um, she'd say, well, do you know something? You need to dress back from this problem and look at it in a wider context. And that's what we fail to do often. Yes. We fail to see problems, not only within the family home in a wider context, but societally in, society, in a wider yeah. context. But having said that, half the problems that we encounter today societally um, in terms of the behaviour, such as knife crime, um, is because we've been sitting there cogitating over it and someone's lost their life. Well, you, you're going to wait before you intervene. Mm. It doesn't make a fat lot of sense to me in terms of societal safety. It doesn't make a fat lot of sense in terms of societal uh, um, safety or, or fairness. It, it just doesn't. You, you know, you, there, there are some times in life where you have to physically intervene because, you know, the risk is too great. 
And, and, and people are sitting there saying, oh, it might be an idea to do this and do that. Well, you know something? You can sit there all day long and you say yeah, it might be an, a good talking, idea. But what talking. happens is that a vacuum's created then and within that vacuum, shit happens. Mm. And, you, and you don't have the commodity that is time to sit around and wait to do something. Mm. And, and, you know, I, I, I struggle with this whole notion that... Uh, you know, we, 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 we see this knife crime, like like you mentioned earlier on, and then, like, they say, oh, we have to have a review of what's going on. Fuck the review. Yeah. You know, what what are you doing? What are you having a review for to tell me more of the same? It's like when we say, it's like when people have meetings, they have a meeting to tell you you're having a meeting. Yeah. No, you go to work, it's like, we're having a meeting. Everyone, yeah. I'm having a meeting. If you're going to have a meeting, you're going to have a meeting because it's something that is meaningful where you're going to intervene and you're going to be yeah. uncompromising about your intervention to fudge a situation, to stop a situation, to... To you know, if it was if it was an artery that was bleeding, you'd bloody cauterize it, and that is to save life. Well, it's no different out there in in, in the community. If there is a fundamental difficulty, however which way you deal with it, you stop it, and then you go on from there. You don't wait because life is too precious for you to be waiting around. So you intervene as unpleasant as it might seem. You intervene. And, and and that's what we don't do really, and uh, that's where I struggle with my role in you know, especially professionally. Yeah. Um, I, I struggle with the fact that um, so much of what we do is um, well-meaning and ineffectual. Yeah. You know, and there, there are people out there who are dying on the streets. You know, I was working in Salford more recently, and Salford was one of these places where there was a murder a day. And it's like, what are we all doing here? Yeah. What are we doing? You know. The stats are staggering. I think it's something like 21,000 people with knife offences. There's been 21,000 mm. or slightly more than that in 2018. So something like 59 people a day were the victims of knife crime. Yeah, yeah. A but, day you know, across England, Scotland, and Wales. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, I mean, I was watching some footage on YouTube the other week of some guy who accidentally got cut up by a driver and he pulled out this Rambo knife and tried to attack this driver with a Rambo knife. And this guy walked into court and he walked straight back out. Mm. You know, it's like, what are you doing with a Rambo knife on the street? You know, this 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 thing would cut, it would it would have got a whale. This knife, it's like, but you know, we're allowing this kind of thing to happen, and I I can't blame the kids who are out there with knives entirely. I, I, you know, while they need to take responsibility, they're not into they're not entirely. You know, the, the blame can't solely be apportioned to the individual who's carrying that weapon. You know, when you think about the the the, the structures within our justice system that aren't working. Well, I was going to say as well, there's a lot. Of different reasons why people carry knives like I, I've known young kids who I've spoke to and told them not to but I've said they carry a knife because they're scared like because they see it they say like back in the day you could have a fight like you could literally just have a puncher but now they feel that like if anything happens they're scared for their safety so then they start to carry a knife so it's a vicious negative feedback loop mm. whereas they might not ever even plan on ever using that knife. It's like a deterrent. Mm. But once you pull a knife out on someone, if they've got one, you, you, they're going to use it on you. 
Or, but, but it's interesting though because the vast majority of people who carry knives are more than likely going to be victims of oh, them. But this is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Like, because because it, it honestly takes a certain type of person to stab someone. Honestly, like it, it's not something, it's not normal. Like, do you know what I mean? It's not normal, so it takes mm. a certain time. So how do we deal with it, though? How do we deal with it? There's a massive <laughs> problem at the moment, and the question is, how do we deal well, with it? Well, this was the thing I was going to... Sorry, this was what I was getting onto. How do we deal with it? Because I'm hearing a lot of stuff about stop and search. Like, what do you think in terms of that? Do you think that's a good thing? Do you think that's a bad thing? I used to be a police officer. I don't know if you know. Yeah, yeah, I knew. So this is what I wanted to When you were tiny, I used to be a police officer. I used to be a police officer locally in Kings Heath, Bourneville. A little bit of work in Handsworth. Um, mainly sort of south west Birmingham, yeah. city centre as well, on um, uh, a public order team. How do you deal with it? It's a very multi if I, if, it, it is, it is. But if, if, I, was, if I was to sort of uh, give you a, a, a context... Back in the 70s, what we had was what they called sus laws that were out of order. So if a bobby was to look at you on the street, he, just, he could lift you. Yeah. And he, he, he had full government backing just to lift you, turn you over, throw you into a cell, probably uh, concoct some story, and you'd find yourself on the arse end of a wrongful conviction and there'd be absolutely cock all you could do about it. This is what the police used to do. This was an integral part of life. Birmingham, London, all the major cities, Liverpool, Manchester. It was it was the sus laws. Yeah, yeah. And what happened was that there were certain politicians who were progressive and forward thinking who said, this isn't acceptable. And there were certain community groups, again, who applied pressure, right, in terms of exercising uh, civil liberties. And, uh, you know, they brought about change. And the nature of the change was something that the government came up with, which which they called the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, came around in about 1986, 87. Right. Yeah. And what it meant was that when the police um, applied the law on the streets, they had to justify why it was that they were, they were doing anything with, with, with anybody. You know, so if you, if you were going to pull someone off the streets... So that or, only came about in the 80s? So only, only in the 80s. You just like, Whatever Open season. Yeah. Uh, turkey shoot, as far as you... If you were a copper, it was a turkey shoot, right? You know, especially in the black community, yeah. right? It was a turkey shoot. I mean, we had riots in the early 80s, primarily, late 70s and early 80s, primarily, on account of the youth responding to the bullshit that were the sus laws, right? Yeah. Um, How did you feel as a policeman? Oh, well, we'll come to that. Yeah, yeah, We'll no. come to that. Because... Uh, what was my motivation for, for joining the police? Before I was a police officer, I was a mental health nurse. And um, a lot of what, what I learned about people, I, I learned in mental health. So if someone was upset with me or angry with me, I knew what anger looked like and felt like. Mm. If someone was going through grief, I could see what grief was. If someone was elated or happy, uh, I, I could equally see what that was. So there's the, the the human condition is what I learned in mental health, right. and I learned that in an institution in Winston Green. Right, I was only a young kid, nineteen. Hmm. How old are you now? Thirty-three. Okay, so I was nineteen. So you were over well over nearly a yeah yeah, yeah. over what, fifteen so, years my yeah. se- senior. 
Um, and uh, so I've done that and uh, trained as a mental health nurse. And um, whatever you were doing in terms of the training, it wasn't what they do today. Um, we were looking at uh, human behaviour. Right. We were looking at how it was that you could help modify human behaviour, uh, modify um, uh, thinking in terms of how people manage difficulty. Yeah, you know, yeah. so so you know, I learned a lot in mental health. I learned a lot in psychiatry, and what's more is that I don't know what it's like nowadays. Although my daughter is a mental health nurse, um, I was lucky because we, we we learned from a lot of eminent people. Um, so that was a, a good grounding, a good knowledge base. But what, what I thought, what did I think? Eighty eight. I thought, well, do you know something? What about applying this on the street? Right, what yeah. about what about taking the challenge on? You know, that's what I thought. So I thought, why not? So I went through an application process with the old bill. Um, successful, became an officer. And um, I mentioned uh, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act in the um, mid-80s. And when that came about, it was after the SUS laws. And uh, there was a disbandment of a department within the police called the Serious Crime Squad. You must have heard about yes. them over the years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They fitted up a whole load of people. Yeah. False confessions, wrongful convictions, massive in terms of the impact on corruption, the black community, yeah. corruption, you name it. So, of course, I'm saying to people, I'm joining a police... So in my own black community, it's like, whatever else you are going with. <laughs> Do you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? People are saying, what the fuck is this guy on to join the old bill? The, 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 the arch enemy, right? And I'll be like, well, that's, that's a fair enough question. But I'm going to do it because if you're going to change anything, my attitude is that you change it from the inside. I've always thought that and I always will. So, um, yeah, I took the stick. And when I walk onto a shift in uniform as a young rookie, who's sitting there? These motherfuckers from the, uh, you know, serious crime. serious crime squad who have just been busted down to uniform because they're all being investigated for wrongful convictions and corruption. So I'm sharing a shift pattern with these motherfuckers and I'm their worst nightmare. I'm a black dude who happens to be a young kid who would be targeted by them unequivocally at the drop of a fucking hat so when I'm sat there and I'm sitting on a shift table in a crew room King's Ethel Bourneville police station with these guys there they're sitting where you're sitting now they're looking me in the eye like you guys looking me in the eye now my simple fact of the matter is oh who's making changes now you know your chickens are coming home to roost you know your chickens are coming home to roost. That's the only way you make change. So, I, I, you know, I'm obviously in there. I agree with that, though. I do think, like, the way you make change is from the inside. So, I mean, I've got a lot of friends who are police officers. I don't, really, don't, I've got any, I don't think I've got any black friends who are police officers. Now I'm thinking about it. But... They're obviously was, all too sensible. <laughs> but it was always one of them things, like, you know what? Like, people always be like, nah, you can't join the police. Nah, you can't join the police. Mm. Me, I was just used to think, you know what, if you want to join the police, fair play, because at the end of the day, everyone wants to moan about the system and say, oh, police are racist, police are that. But without representation, 
like what what things gonna change? Nothing. So I wanted to know like did did you find like it, when you was in the police, was it more racism in the police in terms yeah, of my colleagues? More, well, I'm guessing... I came across some racism. I, listen, I, 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 was, I got it from both sides. That's what I mean. I got it from the community and I got it from my colleagues. Yeah. But, you know, something, it's like... Um, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because uh, you get it in the community and the, the uniform or the role demands of you that you, you're fair. Yes. So people can say that shit, but you apply the law. So if someone says, yeah, you know, you're a nigger in a uniform, blah, 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 you know that you can make an arrest and arrest them on a public order matter because you're causing people harassment, alarm or distress. So you lift them. And I used to lift people. People used to give me shit. So I used to lift them. No problem. Yeah, I'll party with you all day long, twice on a Sunday. No problem. I lift them. So you get your colleagues then, didn't you? So your colleagues are coming with their little jibes. So what, you know, so what do I do? I get nasty. I'm dirty, I got low down. I didn't care less. I had an inspector, he says, you know, you made this mistake, you know, what do you think you were doing? Did you come off a banana boat? This is what I'm saying. He wouldn't get away with that today. No. And I'll just, I'll, I'll just threaten to do him on the fucking spot. And what does he do? He sends one of his uppos in to try and manage me. He says, where the fuck are you going? So I had my scraps. I had my battles. Do you know what I mean? So, but what do you do? Do you buckle or do you front it? You, you front it because you front it because there's no mechanism in that job at the time to back you. So you front it. So I, I got downright nasty. You know, I, I, got, well, I went into some dark places and I was only too glad to for my self-preservation. But, you know, having said that, having said that, there were some colleagues in that job that were just excellent, and they were the, the, the majority of people in that job were were, were, were great. Yeah. And I said, I'll say it now, and I'll, I've always said it, that in spite of all of that bullshit, the vast majority of people in that job were good to me as a colleague, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was one particular individual um, who, uh, I don't do haters at all, but I fucking hated him. <laughs> And I knew I wanted a piece of him, but he surrounded himself with people so he couldn't be got at, you know, because that's the kind of coward he was. And you know, when you look back, you know, over the years, you know, there's an element of wisdom that you have, you exercise, and you can see on reflection how things went. And yeah, these individuals are out there, but it's like anything, it's a learning curve, isn't it? You know, what do you do? Do you make it destroy you or do you move on from it and genuinely sort of progress? in terms of whatever your career path is or whatever your social or emotional path is. You know, that was there. You look at you look at the criminal justice system now. If you go out there and do anything naughty, the likelihood is is that whoever's arresting you is gonna be escorted or is gonna be you are gonna have a police officer of a minority minority ethnic background. You go to the custody block where they're lifting you and they're going to process you, you're more than likely going to have somebody in there from a minority ethnic background. You go to court, if they're prosecuting you or defending you, right, in any of the major cities nowadays, you're yeah. going to have someone from a minority. You go in front of a magistrate and you've you got, you got the chair and the two wingers, someone up there is going to be from a minority ethnic background. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that's the reality, you know. So there's an element of, of, of my attitude that says, you know something, if you're out there and you're cutting up rough with a knife, right, 
you can't tell me about your social deprivation. I'm struggling to sort of, you know, have that argument, you know, with any notion of validity, because there are certain structures that are in place that are causing people, not dissimilar to you in terms of your ethnicity, not dissimilar to you in terms of your socioeconomic makeup, that are equally going to be part of a process that is seeing you being dealt with by virtue of some notion of justice. Yeah. You know, you can't argue with it. But some of us have to go there in order to make certain things happen. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, man. I think that's it for the day, boss. <laughs> we'll leave it on that note. Yeah. Because we could have gone deep then. I was going to go into the prison system. And no, I don't even get me started <laughs> on the bloody prison system. That's a failing bloody area as well. Oh, that massive, that saddens, me, saddens me massively. The over-representative of young black males in custody. Bullshit. And in the mental health system as well. Mental health as well. But do you know what kills me at the moment? What's killing me at the moment is this bullshit notion that private companies can come in yeah. Like they do in the United States. We're no different to the United States and the UK in terms of how we let special interests and, and corporations come in and take over fundamentally what should be publicly so, yeah. um, government um, sanctioned. Yeah, yeah. Entities. Yeah. And, and, and it, I, I just think it's disappointing and, and society's suffering for it. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Definitely. Wrap it up. Good to talk, boys. Yeah, man, it was very good. Long may this continue. Yeah, man, we'll be, we'll be happy to invite you in again, man. I was I was uh, enthralled by that conversation <laughs> for the most part. I didn't even want to speak, I was just listening, man. But yeah, this has been politics and bullshit. I've been mm. Greg Rogers, Alan Broomfield, and Gary Whittingham. Thank you. Cheers, gents. Uh, it's a wrap.